welcome back to Trinus Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I do is I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. And right now, what I'm doing is talking about how these seven men are disrupting the comic book industry. Or at least how these seven men did disrupt the comic book industry. Or maybe the better way still to say it is how three particular men out of seven disrupted the comic book industry. And anyway, if it sounds like I might be talking about Image Comics, that would be because I am, in fact, talking about Image Comics. You see, boys and girls, your Uncle Magnus has quite a lot of affection for the early offerings of Image Comics. Now, a lot of people dunk on it these days and whatever. Although, you know, I've noticed that it's actually less common now to, to criticize the initial offerings of Image Comics. It's, you see less of that these days than you did, say, 10 or 15 years ago when calling something 90s in reference to comics was eh, implicitly a, 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 it was implicitly an insult, you know? So I don't know, it's, uh, <clears throat> but me, I love these comics, I always have, and I think a huge part of the reason for that is uh, the energy, the, the excitement, the, 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 the power and the spectacle, all of that stuff, everything that makes this type of comic book great is on full display in the early offerings of Image Comics. Now, at this point, you've probably heard me talk about quite a few Image Comics, and I recently shifted gears to talk about the Savage Dragon. In particular today, I'm gonna be talking about the Savage Dragon number two. Cover date is July, 1993. Cover artists are Eric Larson and Steve Olive. Writer is Eric Larson, penciler is Eric Larson, inker is Eric Larson. Colorists are Ruben Rude and Steve Olive. Letterer is Chris Eliopoulos. Editor is Janny Wong. And the story is entitled The Savage Dragon versus the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Story synopsis is as follows. A beautiful costumed woman enters into the precinct of the Chicago Police Department and instantly draws the attention of all of the male officers. Alex Wilde confronts this new arrival and learns that her name is Dart, and she's the new super cop that's been recruited from Detroit where she'd been fighting crime for years now. Her arrival was kept a secret by Captain Stewart in case anything suspicious was going on. An alarm klaxon sounds at that very moment, and Alex explains that the dragon is out of town, so naturally all hell is broken loose. <clears throat> Meanwhile, the dragon has been loaned out to New York City once more, and is frustrated by it, knowing that his own city now goes undefended, or so he thinks. It seems that elderly women are being abducted by what has become identified as some kind of gargoyle, and it needs to be located and destroyed such as the dragon's task. So, the dragon stalks the rooftops and finds himself attacked by the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, who wrongly mistook him for the gargoyle. 
The turtles are held off by their intended victim before they all realize that this was a big mistake, after which the turtles apologize to the dragon, now recognizing that he is who he is, specifically a cop. They'd intended to stalk around and then defeat the gargoyle themselves, and so their assistance is welcomed by the dragon. It's not long before the creature reveals itself and battles against all five of the heroes. Whilst the turtles keep the monster uh, occupied, the dragon gets into a position for, uh, uh, for attack. He leaps up and with a single punch, he destroys the gargoyle. He questions how such a being could exist, and it's suggested by his new allies that perhaps magic was involved. This reason is dismissed by the dragon, unaware as he is, that the villainous Virago, or Virajo, I'm not really sure how to pronounce this character's name, to tell you the truth, but anyway, unaware as he is that the villainous Virajo uh, watches on. It had been her mystical abilities that had animated the gargoyle, and she now slinks away into the shadows. The dragon has no interest in investigating further, as he's eager to head for home. Elsewhere, in DeKalb, Illinois, a young delivery boy arrives at the home that contains the corpses of a couple and opens the door when he d once he discovers that it's, well, open. He instantly notices the bodies and runs away screaming, the sound of which alerts the person whose voice had been pre previously heard off-panel screaming for help. To be continued. So, what did I think? Well. Uh, before I start talking about the cover, uh, one of the things that I do want to make a point of emphasizing is it was common for these initial image comics to ship late, and honestly, there are a lot of reasons for that. The, you know, the late shipping. Partly it's due to the image founders being... They may have been at the top of the class when it comes to art, but they were a lot more green around the gills when it comes to writing, and they were complete amateurs when it comes to publishing. So basically, they had to find ways to... <clears throat> had to find ways of eh, maximizing their time, shall we say, because it's part of the expectation of the initial offering of Image Comics, or Early Image, that Eric Larson is going to draw Eric Larson's comic. Todd McFarlane is going to draw Todd McFarlane's comic. Jim Lee is going to draw Jim Lee's comic. You know, so on and so forth. That was a huge part of the marquee appeal of Early Image to begin with. And so the co-founders understood, I think, that they really couldn't short shrift the art too much. So nevertheless, they do have companies to not just run, but they have companies to build, companies to run. They have, um, they have basically, maybe this is the best way to put it. They have responsibilities that go far beyond simply drawing a comic, right? Now, drawing a comic book is a full-time job all by itself. So... How much more of a full-time job did, did these guys have on their hand trying to put together a full comic book every single month while also building a company, running a company, publishing a comic, etc., etc.? They were busy. And so that's a big part of the reason for the lateness of early image. But another part is 
let's face it, some of these some of these artists were more committed to putting together a full-length comic book than were others. I I think most of us can agree on that. And so one of the shortcuts that at least Eric Larson seemed to have glommed onto after a while is basically killing two birds with one stone. Number one, yeah, in a certain sense, at this juncture, at this point in history, all of the different image titles exist in the same universe with one another. And there would come a, a time, I think, when that implicitly stopped being true. But at least for right now, this this is still the state of affairs that all of these image comics, they still take place in the same universe with one another. But let's face it, each of these creators has to do his own world building, right? And there would come a point, again, when that world building, it would be their own worlds, independent of one another. But at least for right now, certainly their own their own world building. And so, as I say, I think Eric Larson kind of figured out at some point you know, he really can kill two birds with one stone. Number one, he can do all the world building that he needs to do in order to set up, well, I don't know if set up is necessarily that, well, whatever, I'll just say, fuck it. Uh, all of the world building that he needs to do in order to set up the embryonic image universe that's being built here. And at the same time, he can take a little bit of the load off with having to produce a, a a full comic book every single month. Now, according to Comicsology, the 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 page count for the dragons portion of this issue is 19 pages. But that over as I've said before, that overlooks a lot of things. It overlooks the cover, which is its own sort of page. It overlooks uh, two-page spreads, which Let's face it, this is image, you know, that it, you know, that is going to happen and so on and so on. And so what I think is, let's see, this is officially, it's 19 pages counting the cover without the page or without the cover. That brings us down to 18. It looks like, well, we'll tell you what, we'll just call it even and say that they're that there really are 19 pages of story going on here, in, at least for the dragon's participation in this issue, which means that other stuff can fill out the remainder of the issue. And so it is that there's actually a backup story that I frankly have no interest in discussing, but there is a backup story. This takes place in, let's just call it the, the dragon universe, because yes, there is an image universe, but... Mm, Yes and no. So we'll just say that this takes place in the Dragon's universe. This is this stars a character called, well, Star. And as I say, I don't care really to get into that very much, except to say that uh, Star's portion of this issue works out to one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight pages. And so between the, I, I think I said 20 uh, 19 or 20 pages for the Savage uh, Dragon, like the official Savage Dragon story in, in in this issue. So that's 20 pages plus another eight pages. So you're actually getting a kind of a full-length comic. And uh, again, my guess is Eric Larson is doing this to kind of take some of the load off for himself so that he can spend some more time building up his company 
and figuring out how to publish a comic book month in and month out. And at least at this time in history, there really wasn't necessarily a, a certain issue of image or a certain image title coming in or rather coming out month in and month out, right? So <clears throat> anyway, other other image creators would try something similar, divvying up a book between the title character and something else. And they, I think it would be fair to say that they are not always as successful with that as Eric Larson is here in The Savage Dragon number two. Because yeah, we get a fairly lengthy dragon story, not necessarily full length, but nevertheless, uh, a, a lengthy dragon story. And then we get some other story, which again, it's about this character called Star, and I don't really give a shit. So anyway, so there you go. Now, as to the issue itself, you know, guys, originally I was planning to come on here and tell you what a ballsy idea it is for your second issue to use that as an intercompany crossover. But nevertheless, that's exactly what we're getting here. The dragon has sort of a, it's almost a cliche type of uh, 90s comic era uh, team up, shall we say, with the, with the Ninja Turtles. They, they, they misunderstand one, uh, one another, they fight, then they team up to take down a common enemy. I mean, You've seen that in probably more 90s comics than any of us can... Well, probably more than any of us are going to live to be able to count. So it's not exactly breaking new ground. And like I say, I was originally planning to say, wow, this is a kind of a ballsy idea. Except the more I thought about it, you know what? Not really. Because everything that has anything to do with the dragon in this issue is the exact same stuff that has everything that has anything to do with the Ninja Turtles. So for purposes of reprints, if the legalities of printing a Ninja Turtles story somehow became an issue in the future, no problem. You can remove those those uh, those pages from this issue for reprint purposes, like in a trade or something like that. You can skip those pages entirely and you're really not missing that much. In fact, I dare say that really not very much happens in this issue. You basically get three scenes. Uh, you've got uh, Dart. She shows up at uh, Chicago PD. Uh, the dragon meets, then fights, then teams up with the Ninja Turtles. And then lastly, and I do mean lastly, you get one page of the delivery boy going to the house, finding the dead bodies, and then running away in terror. You get, like I say, basically it's three scenes and not a whole lot happens in this issue. And as I say, the the dragon elements of this issue can easily be skipped over if circumstances ever require it for Eric Larson. And so you could say that really there are four pages in this issue that truly advance the story. Uh, Comixology's uh, pages 2, 3, 4, and 19, and that everything else, that is, everything that relates to the dragon, it's interesting, but in terms of advancing the story and developing the narrative, don't actually need it. And I find that 
kind of interesting. But anyway, so getting into the cover, I got to tell you, this is this cover. It doesn't take very much imagination to see that this would have been a really fucking cool and appealing cover to kids, you know, young collectors in the early 90s, back when this issue came out. It's it's basically the dragon. He's doing this sort of tough guy pose. He's holding a gigantic gun of fucking doom. And he's wearing his wife beater. He's got a pair of cool looking sunglasses on. He's just there. He's looking tough, large, and in charge on the cover. Meanwhile, unbeknownst to him, the Ninja Turtles are swooping down from above and they're doing their, their trademark gritted teeth face. They've got their weapons out. Uh, the bow staff, the katana, uh, or actually both of the katana swords. Uh, the sai, the nunchucks, all that stuff. They're swooping in down on the dragon and they all look like they're ready to kick some ass. So, oh, and by the way, I should emphasize that when I say Ninja Turtles, being as this is this is the early 90s, we do need to kind of emphasize the fact that this is very much the Mirage Studios uh, Ninja Turtles. Try not to think of the cartoon show. That is not who these characters are. These characters are straight out of Mirage. In fact, the Ninja Turtles logo that's on the cover, I think is basically a copy of the Mirage comic book rather than, geez, who published the those Ninja Turtle adventures? Was, was that an Archie thing? I think that was. I think that was an Archie uh, comic or published by Archie anyway. And so that basically that animated series cover, that ain't, or logo, that ain't the logo that's on the cover of this issue. So like I say, these are definitely the Mirage versions of the Ninja Turtles. So anyway, getting into page one, one of the, you know, apart from the maximum boobage that we see here on, well, I guess this is officially page one. According to Comixology, like I say, it's actually page two, but whatever. So page one, apart, like I say, from the boobage here on page two, we there's a wadded up newspaper that's just laying on the ground and it the the headline says Mighty Man Alive question mark. And so it if it wasn't clear before, it should start becoming clear now that there is a character. His name is Mighty Man. He was presumed dead, but might be alive after all. And I guess the thing to to kind of emphasize with that is this is more world building on on Larson's part. This is it's basically meant to to keep the I guess the concept of Mighty Man in the reader's imagination because from the very first page we're once again reminded of Mighty Man. He was mentioned at some length in issue number 1 and now he's getting mentioned again. So that should tell all of us something. So one of the other things that's that, that's going on here on on, on uh, page two, Comicsology's page two, is all of the male cops in the police precinct are ogling Dart, and she seems pretty much, I don't want to say oblivious to it, but she she just doesn't seem affected by it. 
she's confident she's there on a mission she's there with with a purpose and a thong and nothing is going to slow her down and honestly guys one of the questions and it comes out on page three that she's basically she's a superhero and she's here to work with the police and one of the questions that i always had when i was a kid is that with superhero comics we always we always assume that once somebody gets superpowers they're basically going to work on their own they're going to function independently of all law enforcement and in a certain sense we might make exception for superman perhaps but in a certain sense they're going to be kind of criminals themselves and i always wondered why is that i mean you mean to tell me that in the entire marvel universe dc universe and all the other comic book universes out there there's not one person who has superpowers who volunteered to help the police in whatever way they could not one so one of the things that always has worked for me about the dragon and his his world his world view his methods one of the things that's always worked for me about that is the fact that in a universe that really did have people that possess superpowers some number of them i have no idea what the number might be but some number of them will volunteer their services to the local police i mean why wouldn't they i mean shit i would if you've got superpowers to me like just the assumption that i'm going to make is that it's really just a matter of time until sooner or later you get doxed all right it's gonna happen and once that cat is out of the bag there ain't no way to put it back in the genie is out of the bottle and that's the end of it you know pandora's box has been opened and every other metaphor it it, it, it's just a matter of time. So why not nip that in the bud and just go to work for the police? Because you're, because like I say, your true identity is going to come out sooner or later. People are going to come gunning for you. It'd be kind of nice if the, if the cops aren't one of the groups that's gunning for you. So one of, uh, probably the, the thing about the Savage Dragon as a going concern the part that was easiest for me to buy into and convince myself of and believe in is the fact that there's a superpowered cop out there somewhere in the image universe, quote unquote. I found that so easy to believe in. So anyways, now moving right along with the issue here, getting into page three, Dart basically, she... She meets with Alex Wilde and, and basically explains who she is, what her purpose is for being there, and what she's there to do. And she shows up right on time because on page four, the alarm goes off and the, the police are summoned into action. And honestly, the one of the criticisms that I would have about page four is, this is page four, panel three. You can see the text of the, basically the sound effect of the alarm going off. And that's happening in the background. But it's not completely obvious at first what that is. And the reason for that is because there's a lot of blue in this panel already. There's a blue sky out the window. 
this is a police station, so most people are wearing blue uniforms. Dart's attire is this kind of silvery blue color. And then the sound effect itself is also blue. And so really with color you need, in, in, in comics, what you need to do is create contrast. And red is a very good contrast against blue. So if, if the sound effect, number one, if it had just been bigger and more prominent, number one. And then number two, it, it hadn't been written in just such a stupid looking font. And then number three, if it had been colored red instead of blue, I think it would have stood out a bit more because it almost looks like the there are some weird looking pipes that are coming out of the ceiling. It's kind of hard to, at first, to figure out what you're even looking at, or for that matter, to even recognize that that's sound effects text that's in the background there. All of which might have been avoided, or at least alleviated, if the text itself had been printed in red, but obviously that didn't happen. So, anyway. Now, moving right along, we get a two-page spread right here on page five. It's the dragon. He's on some New York scummy-looking New York rooftop somewhere. Of course, he's surrounded by gargoyles, and he's just gazing out at, at the city below. He's trying to find his man, and it's just a really cool-looking page here that that we're getting and over his shoulder we see the turtles swooping into action and there's no re real preamble to this whatsoever basically you've got the dragon he's standing there he's got this internal monologue going on he's trying to find this killer gargoyle looking thing and behind him we see the the turtle swooping into action then on page six the fight's on they don't even trade words with each other the turtles just basically uh, tackle the dragon and everybody starts kicking everybody else's ass. And honestly, with the Savage Dragon, the entire pledge and purpose of this title is, to start with at least, so much, I mean, I don't know so much about modern day Savage Dragon, but Savage Dragon, back, back when it first started, the 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 entire idea going on here is... Lots and lots of action, lots and lots of boobage, lots of uh, 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 cool fights. Uh, there's going to be explosions and people falling off of gigantic buildings and stuff like that. Lots and lots of, of uh, martial arts stunts and, and all this other stuff. And honestly, guys, I like Eric Larson as, as an artist, but I don't really love Eric Larson as an artist. Now... I want to quantify that by saying that, guys, drawing just one page of a comic book is an incredibly difficult thing to do. It's a very labor-intensive task, all right? So I, I don't want to make it sound like I'm disrespecting Eric Larson, I'm disrespecting his art and, and all of that, because I, I really don't want to give that impression, you know? It, it, it would pain me if anybody thought that, but it's like at the same time. I mean, guys, the there's something about his line style. Honestly, it, I think it actually works pretty well for the Ninja Turtles. But in general, I just don't get so much into his line style. You know, in terms of the the other Image uh, co-founders, I like Jim Lee. I like Todd McFarlane. I even like Rob Liefeld. I mean, I think his work. 
I, I I think he's a he's a very underrated artist. I don't know that he necessarily gets his his full due, shall we say? And but honestly, Eric Larson, and I would even say Jim Valentino. I just never saw what the hype was all about with with them. I mean, I reserve the right to change my mind because your tastes change in life. You know, you, you, you get older and maybe you can start seeing things differently. But it's just the way that it is right now, Eric Larson, he's a competent artist, but I just don't see how he's a hot artist, you know, in the in the the wizard idiom. I just I don't see it. I, I, I never I never really have. I mean, it's good, but if it's a choice between Eric Larson art or Todd McFarlane art, I'd take McFarlane every, any day of the week and twice on Sunday, you know? So anyway, but what I will say is that the work that we get here, it is competent. Larson can do a good action scene. I'll I'll give him that much. He somehow has found a way and this is right here on page eight, Comixology's page eight, anyway, he somehow found a way to make a four-on-one fight interesting. And I don't know anything about drawing a comic book page or, or doing a layout for one. I don't really know anything about art, to tell you the truth, other than what I like and what I don't like. But I'm assuming that this is not an easy thing to do. It's Pretty difficult to draw four people fighting one person. And number one, making that fight credible. And number two, making that fight visually engaging. But Larson, he handles it like a pro. I mean, whatever reservations I may have about his line style, which obviously I do have, he definitely can can do one mean battle scene. <clears throat> so... Anyway, the fight goes on. It really this let's well, actually you know what fuck it let's let's count up the pages. The battle between the dragon and the turtles is one, two, three. Well, three pages we'll say. On the fourth page of their battle, they basically fall off a building. They they all do a face plant onto the pavement below. That somehow they they all survive, and without serious injury, I might add. And so after that, they, you know, the dragon even has to break up a little scuffle between, this looks like Leonardo. I guess this is supposed to be a, scu a, a scuffle between Leonardo and Michelangelo. I guess. Yeah, no. Yeah, you can see his nunchucks. So yeah, that's definitely Michelangelo. So Leonardo for sure, and Michelangelo for sure. The dragon ends up having to get between them. And it's at that moment that the gargoyle finally swoops in for the attack. And we get another fight scene. This time it's a five-on-one fight scene. Which, again, Larson has no trouble making this fight credible and visually dynamic. And just fun to look through. It's just, I don't have the same affection for his line style that I have for, say, Mark Silvestri. So whatever you whatever you think that's worth. So anyway, the dragon basically takes the gargoyle out with a single punch, and he understands that there's got to be more. There's got to be more to this thing than meets the eye. There's no way 
that the gargoyle is the real threat going on here, but it's like at the same time, he doesn't seem too interested in following through on who the real threat might be. And speaking of the real threat, she makes herself visible. This is on page 17, Comixology's page 17. Uh, this is... I'm going to flip back to my summer because I'm already blanking on the... Oh, yeah, Virago, Virajo, Virajo, perhaps. I don't... Again, V-A-R-A-G-O. So V-I-R-A-G-O. I'm, I'm not completely sure how to pronounce that character's name. Virajo, perhaps. She's watching from the shadows because that's something that people fucking did back in 90s comics. And then she retreats into the shadows, presumably to strike on another day. And I, I gotta tell you, Dart's costume may emphasize maximum boobage, but I gotta tell you, Virajo probably bows to nobody when it comes to maximum boobage, possibly because the boobage might slip out of that little halfway corset that she's wearing. So I don't know, or bustier or whatever you call those, those things. I don't know. So anyway, then as I say, getting into page 19, we get another view of the house that we saw from uh, the first issue. We get another view of it here. There's blood on the ground. There's obviously a dead body. And at this point, you know, this thing really is starting to rot, you know, because it's got flies and shit buzzing around and you can see blood on the floor. Something just really fucking bad happened here. But we're going to have to wait a little while before we before we get some answers on that. Specifically, we're going to have to wait until next week before we can get some answers on that. Because I'm going to be obviously I'm going to be talking about Savage Dragon number three, but that's next week now. As to feedback, let's see. Ah, yes, we got some feedback. This email is entitled, The Death of Matrix Supergirl and the Return of Superman Lives. This was sent in to me by my old friend, Mark Lax, on October the 15th, 2015. So, yay, we're definitely making some progress here. We're definitely starting to get caught up a little bit. Like I say... Emails entitled The Death of Matrix Supergirl and the Return of Superman Lives. Mark says, Hey Magnus, enjoyed your episode on the Peter David Supergirl series and The Death of Superman Lives. Where shall I begin? Well, let's start by saying I loved David Supergirl. I had trepidations at first because I realized this was not going to be absolutely faithful to Matrix, but after those first few issues, I saw where David was going and thought I'd stick around. Man, was I glad I did. While this, while this series continued, it was my go-to book only after the Superman books. It was a weird, fun ride. And, Mark, I, I, I want to put your email on pause there and, and just say that, you know, it... My memory of it is that I sort of vacillated on this book when I first started reading it. I mean, I liked it, and then I thought, no, actually, I hate it. And then, well, no, I take that back because, you know, this stuff, I, you know, actually, I, I really do like this because, you know, this, this, and this. And no, 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 actually, I, I take it all back again. No, I hate, you know, I remember vacillating on it a, somewhat, you know, I don't know if it was as drastic as I just made it out to be, but this was a comic that, I definitely couldn't just pick up just for the fun of it, right? I had to be in a certain kind of mood for this, whereas other comics that I collected, 
you know, like once things started getting back to normal with Spider-Man, I wouldn't say that the Spider-Man titles were amazing at that time. You know, after the Clone Saga and all that, and Peter was was Spider-Man again. I don't think that anybody looks back at that maybe year or year and a half after the end of the Clone Saga as a great time for Spider-Man. But compared to what had gone before, yeah, it was good. And so that was sort of, at the, at the time that Peter resumed being Spider-Man, that was a go-to thing for me, you know? I didn't need to be in a particular mood to get into that. I just went straight to it. As you say, the Superman books, same sort of thing. Those were sort of go-to books. I didn't have to be feeling this way. Actually, you know what? By uh, Probably around the time that the Peter David Supergirl run started, though, yeah, you know what? I think the Superman books really had declined. But before that, you know, 1995, you know, 1994, 95, 96, and through there, actually is a pretty decent period for Superman. So that was a go-to thing for me. Uh, the Flash, same thing, and so on and so forth. Gen 13, same thing. Not so much with Peter David Supergirl, though. This was something that I kind of needed to uh, screw up my courage a little bit for, or be in a, a certain kind of headspace for it. or Because, so, uh, Mark, I, I don't think it's really all that big of an accident that I haven't really revisited the Peter David Supergirl a whole lot. I think I've covered sort of rapid fire style, but I think I covered like six or seven or eight issues or something like that. And then that was pretty much it. And I honestly, I don't know if I'm ever going to come back to to the, uh, to that title again, because this is something that I really have to be kind of in the mood, uh, in, in the mood for now, I'm going to give everybody sort of a little peek behind the curtain here and say that the the way that these episodes are released are not necessarily the way in which they're recorded. There are instances where I record feedback separate and apart from whatever a given episode is about. Such as this episode that you're listening to right now. It is, at the time that I record this, it's Tuesday, February the 18th, and I've actually put the finishing touch, well, not the finishing touches, but I've basically recorded like 90, like 85 or 90% of all of these different These Seven Men or Disrupting the Comic Book Industry episodes. I've recorded the great majority of those, but some of, some of those episodes, such as this one, still need to have feedback recorded, and so obviously that's what I'm doing right now. But, Mark, the reason I mention all this is to say that right now I'm sort of in this type of horror movie sort of mood, and there's not any particular reason for it. It's just the fanboy muse takes you wherever it is that the fanboy muse is going to take you. So, uh, let's see. Like I say, today is Tuesday, so on Sunday, I read a bunch of uh, Vampirella comics. Quite a few Vampirella comics, in fact. Vengeance of, uh, of, of Vengeance of Vampirella from the '90s. That the uh, Harris, the Harris comics title, Vengeance of Vampirella. So, 
read quite a few of those on Sunday. And then on Monday, I watched The Horror of Dracula, as it's known in the United States, the Hammer uh, horror movie starring, or not, I guess technically it stars Christopher Reeve, or not Christopher Reeve, Christopher Lee as Dracula. It stars Christopher Lee as Dracula, but is he really the star of this thing? I mean, I really don't know. I don't think so. I think, honestly, you can more easily say that Peter, what's his name? Uh, Tarkin, basically, as as Van Helsing. He's the real star of the movie, but I don't know. It's Peter Cushing, but uh, it, it's all in how you look at it. But so there you go. On and on and on. I, I'm in sort of a supernatural horror kind of mood right now, which means that honestly, right now probably wouldn't be a bad time for me to pick up some Peter David Supergirl comics and just flip through those and enjoy them. But this is not a regular thing for me. I mean, I can't, like I say, I have to be in a certain sort of mood in order to, to, and this is my point, I have to be in a certain type of mood in order to get into the, the uh, Peter David Supergirl title. That's not good. That's not bad. I just choose to view that as sort of a mark of how special and how different uh, the uh, Peter David Supergirl is, especially in those early issues. I, like I would say like the first like year or so, because there comes a point when she does vanquish Buzz. And then I think that the the tone of the book changes. And I would say not necessarily for the better. You know, it's definitely different. But then it was different to start with anyway. You know, it, it started off as this, like I say, just sort of a supernatural horror type of a thing. And then after Buzz is defeated, it becomes, well, something else. And like I say, I don't know if I like the stuff that came later as much as I did the stuff that began the the Peter David Supergirl series. Um, again, I, I can't remember the exact issue number. I'll say 10 or 12 issues, whatever, however long it took for that version of Supergirl to defeat Buzz. To me, it's like the story that this thing set out, or it started off telling, that story got told, and then it starts into a different story, and it's, I don't necessarily get into that later stuff quite as much, so I don't know. All of those things are sort of in the eye of the beholder, and Mark, I realize now I'm kind of talking your ear off about really nothing, so I'm just going to pretend like nothing happened, get back into Mark's email where he continues by saying, Linda became a favorite character of mine, and I enjoyed every trial and tribulation she went through while still being an integral part of the Superman books. Unfortunately, this book was also the bastard child of the Superman family. I suppose the fact that the real Supergirl was gonna finally be introduced in the post-crisis universe was one of the reasons this book was canceled. That, and DC was slowly slipping into a pre-to-DODC comics that we all know and sometimes hate. I would love nothing more than to see Linda Matrix again in some form or another. It ain't going to happen. And Prime, or not Prime, sorry, Mark, I'm going to put your email back on pause here and say, yeah, I tend to agree with you. I don't think this this version of Supergirl is ever going to come back. And honestly, part of me thinks maybe that's a good thing because there are certain, there are certain creators out there that 
Only, I, I think they kind of have license and registration on certain characters. Only they should be allowed to write them. And I'm not saying that Peter David has license and registration on this version of Linda Danvers. I Believe me, never make that claim. But it's like at the same time, there's a, there's a nuance and there's a balance to this character that I'm just going to be totally honest with you, Mark. I don't think I trust just anybody with that. You know, and let's face it, I mean, the nature of comics is to crank out product every single month. You just, you, you got to keep the conveyor belt going, you know? And I don't think that turning this character over to other writers as would be necessary, I don't think that would ultimately work to the character's benefit. You can have a bunch of different people write Superman, and it's going to be all right. You can have a bunch of different people write Iron Man, and it's going to be all right. I don't think we can necessarily make that same claim about the Matrix, Linda Danvers, Supergirl. You know, I just, I don't, to me, that that's a much tougher sell. You know, it, it's a lot harder sell. So there's that to think about. The other thing is, and you kind of hit upon this yourself in your email, there came a point when it's like DC Comics just sort of wanted to undo the 90s. And there's a school of thought <clears throat> out there that says, <clears throat> excuse me, Mark, there's a school of thought out there that says comics should be about characters at their most iconic. So if you're going to publish a Green Lantern comic, it needs to be Hal Jordan. If you're going to pu uh, publish a Flash comic, it needs to be Barry Allen. And I'm going to get a sip off my water here. Mark, sorry. Anyway, excuse me. Um, <clears throat> so that's basically the school of thought. It says that comics should present these characters at, at their most iconic. And I understand that. And honestly, you know what? To a degree, I think I even kind of agree with that. But it's like that mentality sort of overlooks the fact that Kyle Rayner was an amazingly well-written character, and he had a lot of fans. You know, when he was the only Green Lantern, you know, he was the only game in town. He had a lot of fans, like, of that iteration of Kyle Rayner. And same thing with, with Wally West as The Flash. I would say, you know what, if anything, even more so. You know, a lot of people out there cut their teeth on Flash comics with Wally. And all these things that DC did, just sort of piecemeal, that gradually undid a lot of the things that happened in the 90s. I mean, number one, it's, being as I came of age in comics in the 90s, I mean, it was kind of hard not for, for me to not... <clears throat> For me to not take that personally, it's kind of like this big fu sticking their middle finger right in my face, and basically saying that everything that it, everything that there is that you love or came to love about comics, well, that's fine, but we want to get back to this stuff over here. <clears throat> and excuse me, I want to get another stuff. I don't know what happens, Mark. The minute I start podcasting or resume podcasting in this case, uh, my throat just seems to go completely dry. I don't get it. Maybe what I need to do 
just have some kind of lozenge or something like that and just uh, chow down on lozenges before I start recording. I don't know what to tell you, but anyway, <clears throat> so it was like DC. They basically just wanted to gradually reinstate, uh, pick a time, sometime in the 80s, if not earlier, and basically just stick with that. And it just kind of makes me wonder, you know, just hypothetically, what if this version of Supergirl, what if she did stick around? You know, well, we all saw how Kyle Rayner, to a very limited degree, Kyle Rayner, and to a much bigger degree, Barry Allen, or, or Wally West, I should say, Kyle Rayner and Wally West were... Well, just sort of mistreated, I, I would say, almost ignored for a, a good bit of the 2000s. And yeah, some interesting stuff has been done with Kyle Rayner over the years, but he's I don't think he's ever going to have the preeminence that he that he once had. And it just kind of makes me think, what would what would things be like if Jeff Loeb had not been allowed to bring back Kara Zor-El and Supergirl? was understood to be Linda Danvers, the basically the, the Peter David version. And that was the version of the character that somehow survived to this very day. Like, what would that character be like today? And I don't mean just from the standpoint that I think Peter David is, if not the only, the only writer, <clears throat> one, of, <clears throat> one of the few writers who is really capable of completely understanding who Linda is, what makes her tick, <clears throat> and this, basically this new creation of his. <clears throat> <clears throat> Apologies. Uh, so what would it be like Linda Danvers being, being written by all of these creators as basically a surrogate for Kara Zor-El? Because you know that's what would have happened. If Linda had stuck around, she would basically be written as though she is Kara, but she's not Kara. And never mind how that impacts upon Linda's character development and all that. It it just, the I, I shudder to think what would have been done with this character. Now, the thing is, Kara Zor-El, lover or hater, she's strong enough to survive bad writing. She can have uh, a bad incarnation. And that's not necessarily the end of the line for her. Linda Danvers, I don't know that she is strong enough to overcome something like that. You know, it could very well be that not being taken out of continuity would put a stink on that character that might actually taint everything that came before. And... I mean, I don't know. We we can't really know what would have happened. All we know is what did happen. And what did happen is Linda Danvers was unceremoniously shown the door basically to make way for Kara Zorel. And that's pretty much that. So we don't really know what would have happened if not for, but we we do know what did happen. And part of me thinks we may actually have dodged a bullet in ways that might not seem so obvious. So, I'm, I don't know. Anyway, 
So Mark goes on to say, Didio and company buried this character, and that's where, she, that's where she'll remain for the foreseeable future. Still really miss that character. As for the death of Superman Lives, this subject and the documentary opens up a whole can of worms for me. First, let me start by stating that I did not hate Superman Returns. It's not a movie I often rewatch, and some of it makes me cringe, but when I saw it in the theater, I thought it was okay. My opinion has since changed, but while I don't care for it, I can't say it's trash. What I will say is it was poorly conceived. We didn't need a rehash or a sequel of the Christopher Reeve movies. We needed something different. Something that paid homage to the character, not, or rather, something that paid homage to the character, not to the Donner slash Lester movies. While I loved those movies, it was time for a more contemporary version. If Superman Lives got made, would that have been the movie that we all wanted? Well, I can't say, but it would have been one wild ride. The documentary was a lot of fun. Just seeing some of the artwork made me realize that at least some imagination was going into this movie. And I want to put Mark's email on pause here and say, Mark, you know, I remember watching that documentary and I have to say, I think I agree with you. Uh, Mark, memory is such a subjective thing, all right? People have a funny way of remembering their feelings, but they don't necessarily remember events, or they don't necessarily remember facts, all right? And it's probably best that I not get too specific, but you can talk to people these days and talk to them about stuff that they quote-unquote remember that never fucking happened, you know? Or you can pick up a history book, and you can read all different kinds of bullshit that never fucking happened, all right? We know it never happened, and anyone with an open mind will will be able to tell you there's no possible way that X, Y, or Z event could have happened. It it was not possible for it to have happened, etc. So... My point in saying all this is my memory of things is that this whole Christopher Reeve cult, it didn't really start until sometime in the late 90s and really I would say the early 2000s. You know, from my experiences with fandom starting in the early 90s and then getting into the mid and somewhat into the late 90s, There was this sense of, yeah, look, I love Superman the movie. It's a great movie, and it's probably the best Superman movie that anyone has ever made. But I don't think that's necessarily the best movie, the best Superman movie that anybody can make. I think that there are ways to tweak and modernize the story and make it just contemporary, you know? And a lot of people pointed to love it or hate it, they pointed to Lois and Clark and said, that's a way to make the story modern and engaging and contemporary without losing the core essence of who this character is, what he believes in, what he stands for, and all that stuff. And I think sometime, it's hard to, to put an exact year on it, but sometime in the late 90s or maybe in the early 2000s, There came a point when it's like the cement dried or something like that. And there are, there arose this, uh, 
contingent of fans who simply cannot get over Superman the movie. And anything that's not that, it's not even that it's not for them. It's bad. It sucks. It's awful. It misses the entire point of the character. And I don't believe that to be true. And obviously it doesn't matter what I think. I really enjoyed Zack Snyder's Man of Steel, but a lot of people out there really don't like it. Even if they haven't seen it, they don't like it. And so it's, I don't know. It my, And my reason for going on that little tangent, Mark, is to say that part of me wonders, you know, part of me wonders, what if the Tim Burton Superman movie had come out? And maybe it's successful, or maybe it flops, or who knows. But what if it came out? And at the bare minimum, it established Superman can be more than just this one thing over here from 1978. Superman can be something else. Would that have killed that Christopher Reeve cult in the crib? And obviously, we can't answer that. Because like I said before, we, we can't really know what would have happened. All we know, Mark, is what did happen. And what did happen is the cult of Reeve, they did arise. And even now, they still wield a considerable amount of influence. And it's actually to the point today, February the 18th, 2020, I'm actually kind of skeptical about anybody's prospects of ever making a Superman movie ever again, you know? That's how fucking bad things have gotten. And I don't know. I don't know. May I, We'll see. It's not like I can predict the future or anything, but I don't know. I've just, I've got a funny feeling about this, Mark. There's it's just strange premonition, you know? Vultures. It's just, I don't think good things are necessarily in store for Superman and live action going forward. So we'll see. Anyway, uh, Mark goes on to say, I do, I, I do agree on most of what you said about Kevin Smith. He has seemed to appoint himself the spokesperson for fanboys and fangirls the world over. He's not. Okay, maybe I'm being harsh, but I've never been a big fan. Though I will say when I heard about his script, it sounded like the most original idea anyone had had for Superman in quite a while. And... Mark, I'm going to put your email back on pause here and say that how the mighty have fallen. I mean, I remember making those remarks about Kevin Smith and honestly feeling kind of bad about it. You know, I, I remember thinking at the time, you know, I think I may, maybe maybe I crossed the line with him a little bit. You know, it's because it's not like the guy's ever set out to do me harm or anything like that. So I don't know. But then I saw this reaction video of Kevin Smith, and it's basically him reacting to, I think, the first trailer for Spider-Man Far From Home. And it's like, geez, this, this is what you do now. You know, this is what, I mean, you're the guy that made Clerks. You're the guy that made Chasing Amy. You're the guy, and, you know, he's the guy that did all this stuff. And now... He posts videos of himself on YouTube where he's reacting to movie trailers. And not just reacting to movie trailers, which is its own... God, how sad is that? 
That's its own thing, you know? But he is blatantly overreacting. You know, he's he's basically mugging for the camera. You know, his nobody, nobody, but fucking nobody responds to a movie trailer this way. You know, nobody reacts to it like that. I don't care how excited you are for a movie. I don't care how surprising this trailer is. Nobody reacts that way. Zero. Nobody. And yet he was. And it's it's like, do you have to be a company man for everybody? Do you? I mean, because as far as I know, He's not on the Marvel tit or anything like that, or getting some kind of sponsorship, or, or for that matter, even too much of ad revenue, as far as I know. And yet here he is. It was just the saddest fucking thing I have ever seen. I mean, you, d- that was pathetic. I mean, look, I get it. We all we all do what we have to do to earn a living, all right? And I understand that. But, dude, have some respect for yourself. And yet here he was. He was acting all excited or confused or bewildered and it's just such shit so anyway i'm not trying to bring the room down or anything but i at least wanted to throw that out there and see what comes back to me so anyway mark goes on to say the casting of nicholas cage made my head explode when i first heard of it but listening to him talk about superman at the time uh, that it was announced uh, it made me realize how passionate he was about the character The fact that typically he's a great actor didn't hurt, and I slowly started to change my mind. I must say, I was excited to hear that Tim Burton was going to direct and thought the movie was starting to go in the right direction. But it just wasn't to be. The documentary showed us that although everyone involved had their own vision of what this movie should be, not everyone seemed seemed that happy about making a Superman movie. It makes you wonder what really happens behind the scenes and gives you a sense of why this movie just never happened. And Mark, I'm going to put this email of yours back on pause to say that I sometimes think, well, I say sometimes, I often think that even when these movie stars or or movie directors or, or, or just whatever, anytime they talk, even semi-candidly about something that just didn't happen, I still think we're not getting the whole story. Not getting the whole story. I think that virtually everybody involved has financial reasons to ensure that they never completely tell you everything that happened. And honestly, the reason for that could just be Look, we're all in the same business with with each other. We, Even if we're not working together, we at least have to work around each other. So there's nothing to be gained by airing all of our dirty laundry. Maybe it's enough to be vague about it and just say, well, it's the fault of some big, giant, faceless, soulless corporation out there. That's the reason the movie never happened. When, in fact, there could have been real personality clashes that were happening behind the scenes. Tim Burton wanted things a certain way. Other people wanted things a certain other way. And I do find it telling that, at least as far as I know, Tim Burton has not worked with Warner Brothers since 
this whole Superman lives fiasco, you know? And I don't think that's an accident. I think that some bridges really did get burned forever as a result of this movie basically getting assassinated before it could ever even be released, you know? So, and I think that the death of Superman lives as a documentary. It probably tells as much of that story as, as will ever be made public. And honestly, what I remember of that document, uh, that documentary, it basically goes back it takes the easy way out of saying, well, it's the fault of this nameless, faceless corporation, in this case, Warner Brothers. It's the fault of this nameless, faceless, soulless corporation over here. That's why the movie didn't happen. And it's one of those things that it's probably true in so far as it goes. But I can't help thinking there's maybe a little bit more to it than that. So anyways, whatever. Getting back into to Mark's email, he wraps it all up by saying, Still, the death of Superman lives, uh, uh, what happened, is more than a curiosity. It's a statement on filmmaking in Hollywood, as well as people's perception on Superman and whether any filmmaker will ever truly understand this character. As Batman v Superman looms, just to tell you how far back this email was written, as Batman v Superman looms and talk of a standalone movie gets uh, bandied about, we can only hope he will get the treatment he deserves. As always, your friend, Mark Lax. And Mark, thanks for taking the time to write in. Thank you for your patience as I've slowly but surely got uh, and am in the process of getting caught up on all this feedback and all this stuff. I really appreciate you uh, sticking with me. I appreciate you taking the time to write in. And I hope to hear from you again in the future, because I got to tell you, obviously, this was a very thought provoking email that you sent. And I hope to hear from you again in the very near future. So that, I think, is pretty much it for me for right now. Now, uh, as to next week, I'm going to be getting into uh, this is going to be the Savage Dragon number three, but that's next week. So I think that's pretty much it for me for this week. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find this show on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. My Facebook group is the only official place where you can find everything that has anything to do with this show. The reason for that is because I despise Twitter. 
pretty much everything about Twitter sucks. So join the Facebook group today. Speaking of Facebook, you can friend me just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com. But remember, all feedback and correspondence emailed to me will be read on mic unless you request otherwise. So, if your email isn't intended for public consumption, don't forget to say so. Otherwise, I'll assume that you want your correspondence to be heard by my dozens, and dozens, of fans across the world. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Since we're on the subject of feedback, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality can be found on iTunes just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Won't you take a moment to rate my show on iTunes? That helps new listeners find the show. And just in case you don't think that I've given you enough shit to click on just yet, you can sponsor my show simply by going to twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the PayPal button, donate any amount at all, specify that you're sending Magnus some monetary love, and you will be an official sponsor of my show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a Trinus Magnus show sponsor today. I don't have a Patreon, because if you think that I hate Twitter, boy, just wait till you hear what I think of Patreon. So, if you want to throw some bucks my way, the Two True Freaks PayPal link is the way to do it. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law. Some assembly required. Batteries not included. Many will enter. Few will win. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trinus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy. a podcast called Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. I release new episodes every Tuesday, and sometimes those episodes are all about Smallville. This is Magnus Talks About Smallville. In my opinion, Smallville is the most underrated live-action adaptation of Superman in history. 
Magnus Talks About Smallville is dedicated to themes, story arcs, and character motivations of Smallville. I do a ton of in-depth analysis of each episode of the show, and people seem to love listening to me talk about Smallville. And I want you along for the ride. Check out Magnus Talks About Smallville, a feature of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality and see for yourself why Smallville is awesome. Magnus Talks About Smallville, a feature of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. Only at 2TrueFreaks.com.